0: You see where your business can go. To get there, you may need another 10 trucks. At Century Insurance, we put more than 115 years of industry experience to work to help protect you as you launch a new delivery service or expand into a new region and reach your business goals. Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages and render
1: written and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available on all states. See policy for complete coverage details. Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast platform for marginalised groups to get their voices heard in the mainstream. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Clary Sadler. This week we're interviewing Anne-Marie Lewis-Thomas, a musical theatre director and published composer and lyricist based in London. Anne-Marie is also the principal and founder of the Musical Theatre Academy, the MTA, a drama school that launched in 2009 was named the School of the Year in 2012 and 2017 by the Stage Newspaper. Anne-Marie originates from sunny Swansea. She studied a BA Honours in Performing Arts at Middlesex Polytechnic where she specialised in music with voice and piano and trumpet. Anne-Marie has extensive experience in writing original musicals and this started in the early 90s when she co-founded the TIE Top Hat Theatre Company. She then worked on numerous shows on the London Fringe and off West End, including News Review at the Canal Café, and from 1994 to 2004, Amory was the musical director and arranger for the Steam Industry, an award-winning company that specialised in putting on big shows in small spaces such as The Sound of Music and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. From 1995 to 2001, the Steam Industry produced Christmas shows at the Battersea Arts Centre that frequently broke box office records. Anne-Marie is also an accompanist and performer and regularly plays for acclaimed cabaret stars as well as playing for many of the top London casting directors and performers. She's also an experienced tutor and workshop leader, frequently facilitating community and youth courses and projects. She's also written numerous articles and columns and reviews for local newspapers, websites and online publications. Wow! Wow! I think that's probably our longest introduction to date Hi Anne-Marie, thanks for coming on the show As our listeners can probably gather from that intro You have vast experience in your field We first met when I studied acting in musical theatre at Hertfordshire Theatre School Or HTS as it was more commonly known This was many moons ago when you were the head of musical theatre there Could you describe yourself to our listeners in a nutshell? Thank you. I don't know, that's really hard, isn't it? How to describe yourself in a nutshell, because
0: I suppose you already have. I was an MD, a musical director, and as part of my trying to earn my rent, I taught at the same time and I always kept both going at the same time. I was very lucky to be able to get a job at drama college straight away on, on leaving my college, so as my sort of crap job, for want of a better term, I taught and I always taught in vocational colleges. As you said, I taught at HTS for years. Uh, I also taught at Middlesex. I taught at a place called Reynolds before I opened my own college. Primarily, I think of myself as a musician. That, that's it really. So it, the description of myself is, in a nutshell is I am a musician. And I believe that music is
1: really important and music helps to define me, both uh, creatively and listening. Mouth Off is a podcast that focuses on issues affecting marginalised groups. So let me ask you, as a gay, working class Welsh woman in a predominantly male profession, what, if any, obstacles have you faced in your career and how did you overcome them? I think like,
0: the the way you've labelled me uh, a gay working class Welsh woman in a predominantly male profession is really interesting because to be honest, for for many many years, I think I fought all of those descriptions, as in I didn't want any of those descriptions to define me. I was adamant that I didn't want to be known as a female MD. I just wanted to be an MD, not through any gender politics, but just because. Well, I guess, as I said at the beginning, I feel like music defines me. So I was just a musical director and I didn't think that my gender had anything to do with it at all. I think there are brilliant male MDs, there are brilliant female MDs, but they're just all fundamentally MDs. And I didn't want to be defined. I don't know. I felt that the labels, I feel, can diminish a little bit of the achievements. So, you know, if you got yourself a nice job, it was, and as a woman, you got that. And it's like, was well, not really. I feel that I was competing in an even playing field, that it was to do with... Well, saying that's not even, is it? Because it's always who you know. Let's face it, it really is. So it wasn't particularly an even playing field, but I guess I was as advantaged or disadvantaged as everybody else. Or so I thought. And then as my career got bigger, the working class thing, actually, first of all, the working class thing was something that I always the only one of those, well, no, working class and Welsh, uh, the only two labels there that I have always owned with absolute pride. My dad was a steel worker and my mum did many things uh, sort of manual jobs. In her later years she was a cook in Morriston Hospital down in Swansea. So my parents by their own admission were not educated people and they worked really hard to just allow my brothers and myself to do whatever we wanted to do. They had no aspirations for, for us at all other than what our aspirations were. So I have a sibling that Works in a shop. I have a sibling who's a doctor. I have, or was a doctor. I have me. <laughs> oh, there's me all three of us doing completely different things, but all three of us were encouraged. My parents had pride in what we did. So I think I was very lucky with that. So the working class thing, I'm very proud because I think my parents deserve that pride. If I think specifically of my brother that was a doctor, he's retired now, and myself, by definition of our careers, we've moved into what people would perceive to be a middle class bracket. And therefore, for now, we've kind of stopped that line of working class roots But it's really important to me. I have two children of my own and I always stress that we, and my wife as well, that we're working class. Welsh, I think people get more Welsh as soon as they leave Wales. I don't think I was particularly patriotic when I was in Wales. And then I moved to London when I was 18 and I became fiercely Welsh. Always desperately sad that I can't speak the language. And always embarrassed that I can't speak the language, actually, because I think that I should be able to. And always say that when I have time, that's what I will do, and then I never have time. But I'm really proud to be Welsh. People don't really realise the difference between England and Wales until you go to live the other side of the bridge. That's what I believe. So I'm fiercely Welsh and fiercely working class the male dominated profession is a whole different ball game though because i just didn't see the relevance of it i just felt anybody could be a musician and that was until i actually started to work maybe on bigger shows and i started to notice that certain members of the this was years ago though certain members of the band would have issues because it was a woman in charge And it wasn't even though that I was being paranoid, it was named, it was literally named. I remember taking over a show and literally was told to my face, oh God, it's it's a woman, you're a woman. You know, like, I don't know what I was supposed to do about it, but they felt it was an issue. I did one of the biggest jobs that I've ever done. And at the end of it, one of the band members came up to me, who was brilliant, like he was a brilliant musician. But at the end of it, he came up to me and went, I've got to be honest, you've done a great job. When we started, we didn't think you would because, you know, being a woman and all, but you've done really well. So that was a little bit like, OK, times are maybe not where my head are, if that makes sense. So my head is at one place, but the, t- the the rest of the world hasn't caught up. And the gay thing, I don't think I was particularly happy being gay for years. So I never spoke about it. I was certainly not out. But then I certainly wasn't in either. So I was always out to my friends, but I wasn't out to the world And in fact, it wasn't until I was later on in life that I was out to my father and to my sort of extended family. So I don't know, really, the obstacles. I think the obstacles were there, but by the time I faced them, I'd already overcome them, if that makes sense. I think being a working class Welsh woman, take the gay out of here for a moment, I think what it has taught me is that we, and I use we in the broader strokes for being Welsh, we tend to speak our mind a lot more than the English. The English tend to, I don't know, it's not even like they sugarcoat it. They just don't really say it. Whereas I was brought up in an environment where you just said it and you had to kind of deal with it. Maybe a little bit too harsh, but i um, think thinking of some of my extended family members. But I think there's a lot to be said for it. it's a lot to be said about being authentic and a lot to be said about preparing you properly for the world. So I think, yeah, I think it didn't create an obstacle. I think maybe my not learning to calm things down and see how other cultures worked maybe
1: created a bit of a, an obstacle. Thanks. So what advice would you give other women trying to establish themselves in a male-dominated profession? Well, I wouldn't, actually. I don't want to be known as a female MD. And it's really interesting at the moment, there's a big movement amongst
0: female MDs to champion female MDs. And I see a lot of the younger generation of female MDs coming up and that they wear that label with pride. And I'm certainly not trying to take that away from them, but I don't want it, is the truth. And I think, actually, if you're a woman wanting to go into a world that you perceive to be male-dominated dominated, just go into that world. I think it's that. And you might have to fight a little bit harder, but if you want to do it, you'll do it. So maybe that's the thing. Don't let your ambition get stifled by what you perceive to be limitations. Because I've been doing this now for 30 years. And when I was at college, one of my tutors said to me, oh, you you should get this show. This show should be yours. But it won't because you're a woman. And I argued quite forcibly against that to get him to explain to me why being a woman would prevent me doing that show and asked him to explain to me why. And in the end, he couldn't. And I remember the discussion really well. So you're all like, I can't, I can't. So you can have the show. So I think it's that really, it's like we're limited by
1: our own perception as much as by everybody else's. Can I just say a big congratulations for all your achievements with the MTA. In July, 2016, the MTA launched the four-pronged hashtag time for change mental health initiative. And working closely with your wife, Angie Peake, a well-respected mental health professional, You've developed a charter for the theatre industry to sign up to. And within the space of four months, over 100 organisations had signed up. Can I ask you, what inspired you to launch this initiative? Okay, so um, the Time for Change Charter and the initiative behind
0: that, I suppose it ties into my last answer. It's all through necessity. I opened the college. I had no money. Uh, My wife and myself remortgaged for me to open the college. I wanted to have a counsellor. at at the heart of the college because I felt that was really important but I felt that was just for pastoral care not for any mental health stuff I didn't even know what mental health stuff was to be honest and I couldn't afford one so I asked Angie to help me out because I knew as part of her day job she was a a CAMS nurse consultant I knew that she did counselling and family therapy and stuff so I knew that she was equipped with better tools than I to do therapy or not even therapy counselling I should make that distinction it it was counselling back then not therapy so I asked her to help us out because I felt that the college would be stronger if we could sort that bit out. So she did. And she came on board very much as a favour. And I suppose in reality, like not like a massive favour either. It was like we remortgaged our house. So it was in her vested interest to make sure it succeeded as well. And then within the first few years, students were going to see Angie just talking. I thought they were going to just talk about being homesick or about college is hard or training to be an actor is hard, whatever it was. And more and more then kept coming back to me and going, oh, Angie said I need to go and see a GP because maybe I'm not well and they'd go to the GP and they would come back into college and they would be armed either with uh, like a ticket to therapy or a prescription because Angie had been right and the doctor had agreed to the diagnosis and they had been screened and they had been found to have anxiety or depression or whatever it was. And we're tiny. We're a tiny, tiny college. Like my first year group only had 13. My second year group had 15. It didn't make any sense to me at all why I had so many sick people at my college. We saw it year after year. And it it wasn't any better. So it wasn't just like we had a couple of year groups that had particular difficulties. This seemed to be a constant. And Angie and myself kept talking about it. And I I spent a little while sort of having, and I'm on the record of saying this, saying to to Angie actually quite harshly that she needed to calm down and stop diagnosing them with stuff because there's nothing wrong with them and they're just a bit eccentric. And that's just how our industry is. And Angie quite rightly said, but I have diagnosed them and they go to the doctor and the doctor does a completely independent diagnosis Diagnosis or diagnostic screening, whatever it is, and they've come back with the, with the same result. So maybe I'm wrong. And, and it took me a little while to realise that. And I tell you what did make me realise it was when I saw them getting well, when I saw the students getting well. And then I realised that they'd been ill. So I didn't know they were ill before. I thought they were just, I don't know, I thought maybe they were lazy, maybe they were moaning, maybe they were just a bit highly strung, but they were ill. And once they had their treatment, be that chemical or talking therapies, they were better and they were stronger and they were more resilient yeah. So I couldn't ignore it and my staff couldn't ignore it. And then we had a little look around because we were wondering whether there was anything in that. And there was a survey and I think it was done in New Zealand because a member of their theatre industry had taken their own life. And their survey discovered that one in three of the performing arts industry suffered from mental illness or were susceptible to mental illness as opposed to one in four in everyday life. And as soon as we saw that, both of us, I think, sort of jumped up and down a little bit because it was like, oh my God, that's not just us. This is like a worldwide thing. This is our industry. And I've always had this theory that people go into our industry to escape from things. I never thought for a moment that they might be escaping from themselves or from their own head or from their own difficulties. So as as soon as we realized that, I kind of felt a little bit like, um, what's that story where one person sees a disaster about to happen? A little lad that sort of tell everybody, but nobody believed them. Anyway, I felt a bit like that. So I started shouting up and down on social media about literally, I felt like I was going, everybody stop, stop, there's something wrong. People are ill in our industry and we don't know about it quickly get everybody checked. We should know about it. And nobody listened at all. And then I got really cross about it. And I started directly tagging on Twitter at the time, Equity and Spotlight and BAPM and all these organisations go, look, there is a big problem in our industry. And whilst nowadays everybody talks about mental health, this was back in 2014. And I was literally shot down like all the time just shut up ranting, and I didn't know what I was on about and there wasn't a problem and people knew where to go Oh, it was like constant but anyway I kept going I write quite a bit I do quite a bit of blogging and I used to do some blogging for different organisations and I kept blogging about it as well because I really did feel like nobody was listening to me and I was right because nobody was and then sort of two years further down the line I just had enough because we were still seeing this happening and happening and by this point I would started to ask some questions and I started to do little sort of informal polls online just asking about people about their their mental health in general and all these stories started coming back to me and basically people were ill That's what I discovered. So I don't know. I felt like because I I wasn't the only one that had seen it, I could not have been the only one that had seen it. But I felt like I was. I felt I was quite isolated. So I felt an obligation to tell everybody and to do something about it because it wasn't enough to just tell them. Felt like we had a bit of a solution going at the college because our lot were being screened really quickly by Angie. If they went to see her, they were getting the help very quickly and they were recovering quickly. So it wasn't like I was just going. This is a disaster. Stop. I was going. This is a problem, and we've got a solution. And we could all be doing the solution, and this could be easier for everybody. And nobody listened. So in March 2016, I tried to run a conference called Time for Change, and I put it all out on social media, asking everybody to join in, asking colleges to come and and talk to me about their experience of mental health in their institutions. And two men and a dog turned up. That's not strictly true. Uh, We had two people from equity turned up who basically just said or leave it with us because we're about to launch the Arts Mind website, so it's okay. I had the brilliant Pato tool from Rose Bruford who went, no, no, this is a big problem. We're seeing it as well. We we should do something. You're right. This is a problem. Another couple of teachers that also said that they could see the problem but didn't know what to do about it. And uh, journalist Susan Elkin from the stage was there as well. And she wrote a really great article about it and also stated, you know, it was a shame more people hadn't turned up. And that really annoyed me because it was... When that went out, I had loads of people go, well, we didn't know about it. Nobody sent us an invite. And it was like, well, I'm trying to single-handedly run a college. I'm trying to run this conference. And I kept putting it on social media. You, did, you chose not to see the invite. I wasn't going to do the research of finding the name of every single person in every single college that needed to see it. I felt like enough people knew I'd been ranting about it. But anyway, so we did the conference and nothing happened from it at all. Uh, Equity told us to just leave it. They had it all under control. I didn't like that. So The conference was in March. Equity said that, that they would soon have the website up and running. I just didn't think that was right. I didn't think that was enough. So Angie and myself got talking and we came up with the idea of the charter. And the charter is proactive approach to mental health because the, the difficulty is we don't know the symptoms of mental illnesses. That's the difficulty. You know, if you've got a constant cough, you should go to the doctor. You know if you're limping, you should go to the doctor. I don't have to keep giving examples, but you go to the doctor for physical ailments. But what are the mental ailments that you should go to the doctor about? Like how many days should be a low day before you think I might not be okay? How many times can you feel sick in the morning but not know what it's about, but you know it's not physical? but you don't go and get it checked out. How many times do you have to feel so sick going on stage, even though you love it because your stage fright is so fierce that you can't deal with it any longer? They're all symptoms. How many alcoholic drinks do you have to have every day before you think that you might be having a maladaptive coping mechanism going on here? How many people do you have to sleep with? because sleeping with people makes you feel better as opposed to you just enjoy sleeping with lots of people. So there were loads of maladaptive coping mechanisms that we could see, but nobody knew that that was potentially symptoms of mental illness. So Angie picked like the top few illnesses that we are seeing in our industry, like eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and just wrote the symptoms. And the idea being people would read the list. And if you were well, it didn't matter, did it? You just read a list. But if you weren't well, and you suddenly went, oh, hang on, I do that. Oh, shit, I do that as well. And she's written in such a brilliant way that you don't sort of read it and go, oh, my God, I'm depressed. You read it and, and then sort of at the end it's, it's nicely worded in so much as you go, okay, I've got a lot of these symptoms. I should just go and get a checkup because things might be better for me somewhere else. And that someplace else is in a place where you're healthier with your mental illness and your mental illness is under control, basically. So I knew that the drama colleges wouldn't sign up for it because they would made their feelings known and they'd batten down the hatches. And that is such an old boys, an old boy network. They all kind of just stick up for each other. Not very many of them look outside of their own organisations. So I went to agents, I went to some of the top agents at the time and asked them to sign up for the charter, which would simply mean that they just had to send out um, a PDF of the charter to their clients. So it cost them nothing, but it would just get the message out there. I went to production companies and asked them to include the charter in their contracts. It would cost them nothing, could they do that? And I went to some theatres and asked the theatres, could you just put a copy of the charter in your building? And can you highlight where people can get mental health support in your area? And I was very lucky that because I've been in the industry a long time, and because people believed in it, I think, I had enough, big enough names that would sign up and went, yeah, yeah, we'll do this. This is a great idea. That in the end... and Rose Bruford signed up straight away thanks to Pat O'Toole so I had like a a big college I had big agencies I had some lovely production companies and a couple of sort of well-known theatres so by the time we launched it in July 2016 Mark Shenton launched it in the stage for us and Mark being like a great supporter of mental health issues having a very well-publicised battle with depression which actually has reared its head again for him at the moment he put it out there and then suddenly loads of people wanted to join and then of course when the colleges saw who had joined it kind of became a bit of a thing of well why wouldn't you join because these other people had joined so it was was a kind of sheep mentality really that everybody would get on board and then suddenly some of the big colleges joined us and we started to talk to some of them and I've got to stress it was the smaller colleges that joined first actually PPA was one of the first ones that joined and then Mountview joined and Art Ed joined, Central joined and we've still got loads of colleges that won't sign, Uh, we have loads of colleges that won't join, we have loads and loads of colleges that think it's complete hokum and who regularly tell me on Twitter that they're doing more than enough for their students even though I've got their students and their staff telling me privately that that might not be how they're experiencing it. So the stigma is by no stretch of imagination over I have to say Um, but it has moved on and the discussion around mental health has moved on. Not as much as it should do. Equity and myself made our peace over it all. When they eventually, mind you, it was about like a year later, they would send the charter out or they put the charter on their website or something. It's an ongoing battle. And I find it interesting that it has been quite a spurt in recent years, over the last year, with some podcasts up about mental health, a lot of different schemes out to helping with mental health. And I feel, in fact, I was speaking, I was a keynote speaker at the, at the Equity Symposium. see how things have come around. From shut up, don't talk about Anne Marie, to come and talk to us about it, Anne Marie. I feel actually the mental health discussion has been even more skewed because now nobody talks about mental illness, they talk about mental health, and they don't talk about the ugly side of mental illness, which which is the side we should be talking about. Now everybody's talking about mindfulness and wellbeing and they've sanitised it because that's a healthier script for them. So I have very strong feelings about that. And I also have strong feelings about I don't know whether we're part and parcel of that problem because we highlighted it. I don't feel like it's an honest discussion that's going on right now. I feel
1: like it's um, a lot of people trying to fight a fire that maybe they're part of the flames. There you go. And staying on the topic of mental health, as well as being the head of musical theatre at HTS... You were, in fact, the designated college counsellor. You actually helped me out on numerous occasions, as at the time I was only just coming to terms with my own sexuality and I was still very much living in the closet. You were actually one of the very first people, besides my best friend at the time, that I came out to. How did the position of college counsellor come about? Was it something that was thrust upon you, or did you seek it out? Um, uh, That's very nice to hear that you feel like
0: I helped you and you've said that to me before privately um, but thank you very much and that's nice to know, because you never know, do you, how these things will turn out. But I wasn't the designated college counsellor. I never was and never wanted to be. I was just a singing teacher. I was hired to be a singing teacher to do uh, what they said that I could be maybe a little bit more. But predominantly, I went straight from college to HTS as a singing teacher. And the role just got bigger and bigger. And what I now realise is that most people with their singing teachers end up having a little tier or or twenty. Because singing is so linked to the psyche. And I, did, I didn't know that. I just thought I was going to be teaching you know, a few scales and a couple of musical theatre songs. So I didn't realise people would want to talk. But I also didn't realise how few people actually waited to find out how people were. So I've always... And this is down to my mum, I think. If I've said, how are you, I've genuinely wanted to know the answer. I don't just ask that as a kind of way of saying hello. And, I, and I'll wait. And I've always noted... If somebody hasn't given me an answer. So you know when you go to somebody, how are you? And they go, yeah, well, and then they go on about something else. And I've always brought the subject back to, no, but how are you? And I guess that's what I did. And I did that as part of my teaching because I don't think you just get people to sing or be vulnerable without finding out how they are. And then... I noticed that more and more of the singing lessons were being taken over with the talking and I didn't want to do that. So then I used to say to you guys, oh, well, come and see me after college. That's fine. And then it feels like, I'm sure it was, it was quite a long process, but it feels like the next moment I was literally staying. So we used to finish at 5 and wasn't it? Five or six? I don't know. But I'd be there till uh, half six, seven so sometimes later like every time I was up there talking to people that stuff that's rubbish now actually because all of you guys had my number which I'd never allow in my college but I just always used to feel sorry because I didn't feel like there was anybody to really talk to and I hate the thought of people struggling on their own so I don't think it was thrust upon me and I don't think I seeked it out But I think there was a big gap there and I think I ended up filling it. And then over the years, it just became the thing that I did, which I guess informed the decision at the MTA of knowing that I had to have a counsellor because I knew I couldn't do that at my own college. And I didn't like the safeguarding stuff around things like giving people the phone number and feeling responsible. And I wanted to have somebody that knew what they were doing. I was far too young giving out some of that advice, I think. And whilst I'm truly, really humbled to hear from loads of you sort of years later to say that I was helpful... I kind of know if it happened today, I could have been a lot more helpful because I've got a lot more expertise or I would know that I have no expertise and I would send you to the person that could help you. So yeah, it
1: just happened to in truth. Speaking from personal experience, I have found the performing arts industry to be very cutthroat. I remember being told when I was still in training to lose the Welsh accent, even during informal conversations as I would forever be typecasting myself as a thick, valleys woman. (laughs) I was also told that a general rule of thumb is that women have long hair and men have short hair. I was informed that due to my look at the time, short, spiky red hair, I would probably only be cast as serial killers, a zany children's TV presenter, a lesbian or a quirky nurse. Now, for the record, one of my first ever tours was playing Vera Lynn. I then went on to don a ball gown in a putting on the Ritz style review, as well as playing a female lead in an old-time music hall tour. So the moral of the story is, don't believe everything you're told. <laughs> what are your feelings on the appropriateness of this industry for someone with immense talent, but that may struggle with low self-esteem or have mental health issues? Is there a place for them And how should they navigate this dog-eat-dog world?
0: I I think a lot of this really upsets me because I think this was just bad teaching, to be honest. I don't think that's how the performing arts industry actually ever was. And I certainly don't think it's like it now. I think what happened is that we have a lot of people who believe that they're in our industry who end up teaching in our industry. And they make up the rules as they go along. That's what I think. You know, typecasting for sure exists, but not to that kind of stereotypical level. And I think it's insulting. And I think it's insulting to our industry to think, in many ways, we've always been progressive as an industry and we've always been liberal. And in fact, the college that I taught you at, one of my biggest issues there was I didn't feel like some of the other staff were truly in the industry and therefore were giving poor advice. And, you know, the fact that you could remember it now really annoys me that those people didn't take take into account what they were saying. Because our words are really powerful. And when we're in a position of authority, our words get stronger, even though they're not stronger. They're just opinions. But people hold on to them. And as your own career has completely proved, you can do whatever you want to do. You're not to be limited. I think there are you know, I speak a lot about this to my students. So for example, if like 18 year old Claire was with me now, looking at how I seem to remember 18 year old Claire was looking, I guess we'd be looking at your brand really and kind of saying, well, where do you want to be? And what do you want to do? And let's put together like the package for your brand. And if your brand, I don't know, maybe I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot here because I know we're in the middle of discussions with one of my students at the moment that you have to make things quite easy for you at first, I think. So if you're looking for an agent, for example, People go on those first appearances and then if you leave them with questions, so if you came in looking like a punk rocker but had the most beautiful classical singing voice, I think there's lots of questions there that they can't quite know where to place you. So we have to kind of guide them with our choice of material or with what we wear. And so I think it's possible to do that, but I think it's to do with branding basically. And we are all our own brands, we're all self-employed. I don't think the industry is that cutthroat. The industry is hard. But that's different to cutthroat. It's an oversubscribed industry with too many people being trained that actually aren't up to the job, and that's a difficulty. But that's a difficulty because people are getting ripped off as well, but not cutthroat. And if you've got low esteem or mental health issues, literally, before I did this interview with another HHS girl, actually, I was doing an Insta Live with Amanda who of course trained at the same college as you. One of Amanda's fans said something very similar and I stopped the conversation to say what I'm gonna to say to you now. Our industry is not there to build up your self-esteem and it's not there to solve out your mental health issues. So I would say if you've got low self-esteem and you've got mental health issues, get yourself well. Get yourself what well. not to do with this industry, just because life is going to be easier for you when you're well. Go and see a therapist, go and work out why you've got low self-esteem. Go and do the work on yourself and then enter our industry. Because the industry shouldn't be the therapy. The industry should be the icing on the cake, not the roadmap out of your issues. I think for sure, you know, this is why it's one in three of our industry. I think for sure that's why a lot of people end up doing it. But honestly, recognise your issues and go and get help because you deserve the help. You're worth
1: it and then find out whether you're doing this because you love it or whether because you just wanted to escape. The disabled community is still massively underrepresented within the arts. Even if a disabled character is featured within mainstream theatre, often casting directors will opt for non-disabled actors to play the role. Why do you think this is? And if you were involved in the casting of a disabled character, would you have any apprehensions about casting a disabled actor? Gosh, the whole issue around casting is
0: massive, not just with the disabled community. I think there are lots of areas of our community that are massively underrepresented. Would I have apprehensions about casting a disabled actor? No, I I wouldn't have apprehensions about casting a disabled actor if they could do the role. If the role was written specifically for somebody with a certain disability and that person had the talent and the ability to do it, then I wouldn't have difficulty with that at all. But I feel it's a really complex issue. In truth, I feel it's, it's a really complex issue. We've seen, like, lots of things appear. here, so I'm London-based, around this topic. Well, I feel like we see it sort of daily. But there was the big thing, wasn't there, about the show that was on a Southwark playhouse that was talking about what is the parent story of a boy with autism. And they, instead of using a boy with autism, they used a puppet. And there was uproar about it. And I think this is really complex because as the parent of a child with autism, which I am, my child already has difficulty differentiating real life and pretend. Even to the point, you know, my son is on the spectrum. He's highly functioning. He's in mainstream school. But even if he's watching a cartoon, he can often turn around to ask if it's real. So would I put him in the middle of a story that's so traumatic about the difficulties of being a parent with a child of autism? Oh my goodness. No, because I don't want him exposed to that. No, absolutely not. So you're looking for a really special child with a real specific disability to play that role. And I don't know whether that child exists. I don't know whether it should have gone to a puppet. I don't know. I don't think they solved it. I'm just saying I don't necessarily think either it's a straightforward answer of yeah it should always be i don't know the disabled person plays the disabled or the non-disabled years ago we used to do well we still do it and we should do it gender blind we do now isn't it but blind casting and i kind of like all blind casting if that makes sense not blind as in the disability but you know come in if you can do the job regardless of your gender your ethnicity your disability if you can do the job and you're the best person with the job get the job and then it's our job to work around that. But I do think it's a really, really complex issue. I don't think we've worked our way through it yet, but I do know that in order to work our way through it, we have to speak to the people that it affects. So it's no good, you know, I'm an able-bodied person, so it makes no sense what I think. I could speak about the parent of an autistic child because I am that person, but actually to understand the complexity of that casting, we should be speaking to the autistic community to find out what they think. So I think we have to listen to the communities that feel underrepresented and hear what they're saying. And that's the important thing, not just listen to them, hear what they're saying and then act on it.
1: How would you feel if someone did a fantastic audition for you, but it then emerged that they had autism spectrum disorder and hadn't disclosed it on their cover letter or CV?
0: Listen, I, I think loads of people don't know that they're ASD anyway. We've had so many students that are most definitely ASD and haven't got a clue. I think if they did a fantastic audition and we didn't spot it, then they're the right person for the job. If they did a fantastic audition, but in that particular role, we did spot it, then they're not the right person for the job. I think it's gotta be show and role specific. I don't think we can put in blanket rules. That's what I think. But if somebody did a fantastic audition, then I didn't see their disability, then they should get the job. Not that their disability should stop them getting the job, you know what I mean? And also you shouldn't disclose, I don't think on your cv or cover letter unless you think your interaction is going to be so strange and neurodiverse that we would question it i don't see why you should put it down
1: the lgbtq plus community are also underrepresented in mainstream theater not so much with gay men but certainly lesbians and transgendered actors what responsibility if any do you feel towards leading change in this area perhaps by offering marginalised groups a platform to have their voices heard?
0: Oh, God. Well, you, you've said it, I mean, Not so much of gay men, but certainly lesbians and transgendered actors. It's just rubbish. I'm sort of slightly bored. Bearing in mind my answer from ages ago of, you know, I wasn't a card-carrying lesbian. And I, I still don't think I am, really. But I do get cross when you kind of hear a great new gay thing opening, and it's always gay men. And equally, I get cross if you look at a lesbian play or musical or whatever it is, or TV drama, and they all look the same and they're all a bit gruff and they're all still a little bit, I don't know, there's a stereotypical lesbian look, isn't there? And I don't think we should be seeing that. I think we should be seeing that. Plus, everybody else that doesn't look like a lesbian who is a lesbian, that's what I think. I'm currently, for the first time actually, I am training a transgendered student and it's been really fascinating to hear their story. And I think transgendered actors should just be seen as the gender they are, that's what I think.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Anne-Marie. It's been an absolute pleasure. So finally, on a lighter note, I remember from my time at HTS that your knowledge of obscure, lesser-known, offbeat musicals was second to none. In fact, A New Brain remains a favourite show of mine that you introduced me to. Linking to our discussion about increasing visibility for the marginalised, can you recall a musical theatre project that tackles taboo subjects?
0: Well, I think it's really interesting because, as a kind of case in point, lots of things were at one point tackling a taboo subject. Hare tackled the taboo subject of peace, not war. Tackled drug use, uh, and then it, within his presentation, looked at nudity on stage, even though that had been done before. Rent looked at uh, the taboo topic at the time of AIDS and people living with people living with AIDS. Uh, you mentioned William Finn. If you think of uh, falsettos, look, I think. Uh, absolutely the breakthrough musical dealing with aids but also dealing with uh, gay lifestyles that are non-conventional or i suppose non-conventional dysfunctional families so actually i think there's a lot more musicals are are taboo than you think I, or or maybe society's changed so it's not so taboo so if we think of now dear evan hansen and we think about um, the topics and all the mental health issues contained within that, even you know, even down to the worst symptom of of um, a mental health crisis being uh, being committed or being undertaken off stage, we don't see it. Um, so I think actually taboo subjects have become. It sounds salacious, but. It's almost like taboo topics have become the best topics for musical theater. I can't think of something that I've seen that's shocked me. I mean we're seeing more and more things that are trying to break down taboos a little bit more you know even thinking of the prom and what what that musical is trying to do uh you know the first time I guess from a a gay female perspective it's the the first time we've really seen a, a lesbian love story at the at the center of the of the play although of course that was also sort of touched upon in Falsetta Lands as well um but then again like as quickly as that was a, a revelation and as quickly as everybody complained about um a gay kiss at the Macy's parade uh, it's also as quickly become a, a, a tv movie so it's it's quickly gone mainstream so i'm not sure actually what is taboo now um But I do think it's encouraging that more and more musicals are being written about things that matter and that are relevant to today. I hope that helps, I hope that makes sense. Tell me what mattered. Explain to me who was there. Draw me a window. Show me why everyone was so scared. What did people become like when the crisis hit? Monsters or missionaries? Was it you stood with, the givers or the takers, the truth seekers or the fakers?
1: Join us next time on Mouth Off when we interview critically acclaimed poet, author and playwright Patrick Jones.